trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Ah, yes, I got a whole truckload of wrong think to deliver. Not to worry, though. I'll carry it in myself. I'll even set it up for you. All you have to do is make yourself comfortable. Sound like a deal? All right. (laughs) Here we go. Thanks again for joining us today. If this is your first time aboard the uh, Wrong Think Express, well, hang on to your hat. There's a, there's a lot going on, many narratives to be questioned. Why why is not so much a matter of we have to maintain our partisan purity and only believe the things that this party or that party teaches? No, it's a matter of there's enough misinformation, disinformation, and just plain old propaganda being blasted at us 24-7 that if you're serious about staying tethered to reality, you're going to have to put in some work. You've actually got to do some of your own research. You've got to do some of your own digging. And most of all, you've got to be willing to think a little more deeply about what's going on and not just jump on the bandwagon. Now, I say this as someone who has jumped on the bandwagon many, many times and probably still would under the right circumstances. Okay, I'm, I'm human. If I get my emotions engaged, wow, look out. You know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hop on the bandwagon and start making noise just like everybody else. But I've learned over the years, caution, (laughs) and to be especially suspicious of anything coming to me from official sources or from legacy media, which acts more as a uh, a narrative manager for those official sources. There's some pretty crazy stuff going on. And and before I go one step further, I just got to throw this out there. We can't allow ourselves to be distracted from the things that actually matter. I'll give you an example of this. Um, The last few days have been really hectic, getting my mom in and out of the hospital. She's she's getting up there in years and experiencing some health crises. And it uh, it's been uh, it's been very challenging, you know, to to see her, you know, going through uh, some serious difficulties and, and approaching end of life. I mean, we're just we're at that stage. We're talking about end of life decisions. We're talking about Okay, you know, what uh, What do you want to see happen? And it's a great clarifier. Okay, I'm not telling you this because I need your pity. I'm I'm doing fine. My mom is, is doing fine. But she matters to me a lot more than, uh, hey, did you see what the president tweeted today or, or anything like that? I'm aware of the other events that are going on. I'm aware of the financial meltdown that seems to be gearing up right now. And, yeah, it's relevant But it also is something that I really don't have control over. You know what I do have control over? Strengthening and maintaining those family bonds, which, you know, I happen to believe those are bonds that are are maintained even beyond, you know, the grave. I think that uh, that the love that we have for our family members, that they have for us, I believe that continues on in, in whatever comes next. But I share this with you. Just don't let the... Don't let the details of all the crazy stuff that's happening take you away from the things that actually will matter the most in the long run. And it, I guess my point here is if you're not building and, and maintaining those relationships and, and shoring them up where you need to, you probably should get on that. 
because all the indications are times are going to become much harder than they have been, probably in most of our lives. And the people who you are going to need to count on and the people who will count on you are the people closest to you. So if there's some unnecessary drama, maybe it's time to put that uh, aside and, and, uh, and just let it go. It's okay. You know, I, I think there's real strength in, in those who offer forgiveness. I think there is real strength in, in those who are willing to, to simply, look, be misunderstood. Or let somebody, uh, some, let somebody hold a, an opinion that you feel is wrong, but let them hold it. Focus on showing what matters most, which is the person. Not their opinion, but the person. Anyway, that's kind of an awkward little stump speech here, so I'll hop on down. Let's, uh, let's jump into a couple different topics here. Uh, I think the biggest decision that any one of us is going to have to make in the near future will be whether or not to consent to a central bank digital currency. Now, I know I'm beating this dead horse a lot. And, and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm probably sounding like a one-note symphony when I keep bringing this up. I do believe that this is going to be one of the pivotal decisions that's going to determine whether or not we remain, you know, or we hang on to the vestiges of whatever freedom we have left or whether we just give it all up. Because that central bank digital currency will allow for unprecedented control of every aspect of your life, or at least every aspect of your life that, uh, you know, pertains to being able to make a living or to spend money or to earn money or to, you know, whatever, to buy the things that you need. So, yeah, every aspect of your life will be affected by it. And it's not an accident, you know, that uh, suddenly we've got this financial crisis. In fact, I've got a great article here from Kit Knightley warning us that the Silicon Valley bank failure is actually boosting and setting up the perfect crisis in which the government can then swoop in and rescue us. That's in quotation marks with a uh, central bank digital currency. Here's how Kit puts it. Kit says last Friday saw the total failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, the 16th biggest bank in the U.S., the biggest bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis. By Sunday, the Silvergate and Signature Bank had joined SVB in full collapse. All three are now safely under Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation control. Now, the FDIC has taken the unusual step of fully guaranteeing all deposits kept with the SVB, meaning the federal government will give taxpayer money out to compensate every Silicon Valley Bank customer. Yeah, but the damage didn't stop there. Kit says naturally this put pressure on other regional banks with two more, First Republic Bank and PacWest Bank, coming close to collapsing themselves following many runs. So this past weekend saw Wall Street's four biggest banks lose over $55 billion in value. Bank stocks around the world are sliding in value, and as of this morning, Credit Suisse's stock is at an all-time low, sparking a sell-off of stocks all over the world. So in short, the financial situation is teetering on the edge of a major crisis. But Kit asks the question, is it accidental? And if not, what is the agenda behind it? Okay, well, Kit Knightley says, first of all, no, it's not accidental. So let's get that out of the way. Does that mean the collapses were planned and engineered to the last detail? Eh, maybe, maybe not. Certainly there was at least some warning for people in the know. Silicon Valley Bank's SEO or CEO rather and, and CFO dumped a combined $4 million of stock in the two weeks before the crash. 
and Peter Thiel's Founders Fund withdrew all their funds from Silicon Valley Bank the Thursday before the collapse. By the way, did you know uh, they paid their senior uh, employees all of their bonuses just prior to the crash too? Yeah, kind of let's loot the treasury on our way out the door, but they they knew what was coming. And, and Kit says that's despite the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation finding that SVB was a sound financial institution as late as March 9th. I mean, that was just last week. That was a week ago. And that it only entered insolvency after investors caused a run. Now, obviously, that's not proof of an intentional collapse, but it's something to make a note of nonetheless. Anybody with some kind of knowledge could have made a fortune in put options over the weekend, so it'll be interesting if any spike in such deals was recorded. But Kit says all of that is irrelevant because, really, we know they've been deliberately tanking the economy for three years as a response to the pandemic. They inflated the cost of food and energy and destroyed the value of our currency by printing billions upon billions of dollars, pounds, and euros. So even if there was no specific micromanaged setup with this, with these specific banks, bank failures were the inevitable result of this economic vandalism. Inevitable and desired. So the important questions are why and what happens now? One aspect will be tighter regulation, specifically of cryptocurrency. It's likely no accident that two of the failed banks, Silvergate and Signature, are major investors in crypto, and SVB is known to have links to crypto as well. So the narrative will likely come about that unregulated crypto investment poses a danger to the financial system, or that unregulated crypto makes our financial institutions vulnerable to economic warfare, or something similar. Now we're already seeing articles along those lines, as well as dire warnings of the same from last fall. The next phase will likely be arguing that small, regional, private banks cannot guarantee the security of their customers' money, and it would be safer for individuals to bank with either giant institutional banks or directly with the central bank. In fact, it's already being reported that Bank of America has seen a huge boost in deposits since the SVB crash. This process of consolidation in the major banks is likely to continue. Logically, Kit Knightley says there's... uh, there's, there's only one place in this two-pronged propaganda that they seem to be headed, and that is a central bank digital currency. The narrative fits too well for it to be anything else. So we'll come back to Kit's article in just a few moments. I think this is a very well-timed warning. Again, I don't want to sound like Chicken Little. I'm not trying to say the sky is falling, but we have a tough decision to make, and it's coming fast. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to say hello to my sponsors. You'll find them listed at the bottom of today's show notes. This is uh, March 16th, 2023. My sponsors include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, as well as TMCPNation.com. So, let's go back to this article here by Kit Knightley about the uh, Silicon Valley bank collapse and how it is boosting the rise of the CBDCs. Kit says, going forward, central bank digital currencies can be pitched as more secure than traditional banking and more regulated than traditional crypto. Now, further, since the FDIC is now fully guaranteeing deposits in failed banks, well, you're practically banking with the Fed anyway. Why not just cut out the middleman? 
We know they're going to start making these arguments because they already started making them. In fact, in January of this year, the World Economic Forum published a paper titled, Can Central Bank Digital Currencies Help Stabilize Global Financial Markets? So it's pretty clear what the sales pitch is going to be. But more than that, it's possible bank runs will actually be encouraged in the future because they could increase the uptake of digital currency. According to a report from the Bank of International Settlements, another set of studies focus on the risk that a CBDC may increase depositors' sensitivity to a system-wide banking crisis or two system-wide banking crises by facilitating the transfer of deposits. The availability of CBDC may not have a large impact on individual bank runs as it's already possible to digitally and instantly transfer money between a weak and strong bank. However, during a systemic banking crisis, transfers from bank deposits into CBDC would face lower transaction costs than those associated with cash withdrawal, such as going to the ATM, waiting in line, etc., and would provide a safe haven destination in the form of the central bank. The lower costs of running to CBDC compared to cash imply that more depositors would quickly withdraw at a lower perceived probability of a system-wide bank solvency crisis. End quote. So they argue that since any hypothetical CBDC will be more secure than traditional bank deposits and easier to get than cash, people would opt to use it in the event of a run on the bank, and that bank runs would therefore be more likely and more common. Do you see the implication here? Once CBDCs are out there, optional at first, of course, the central banks could theoretically increase uptake by artificially engineering financial instability and causing regional banks to collapse. They won't make it mandatory, they'll just make it safe. Another report, as uh, published in, the, the, in 2022 by the UK's House of Lords, described CBDCs as a solution in search of a problem. Well, it looks like they just found their problem. And problems are just like everything else. The best are the ones you make yourself. So I think that's a timely warning. That's why I'm sharing it with you. I hope that uh, I hope that you will consider the possibility that uh, you may be asking yourself, you may be asked to put yourself into a financial straitjacket. And I hope no matter how uh, convenient, you know, the person holding that jacket makes it, you'll think before you stick your arms in there. Just a thought. All right. Let's see. There were a couple other things I wanted to touch on here. Okay, I'm going to go with this one real quick. Have you ever been to a struggle session? You ever been invited to a struggle session? Do you even know what a struggle session is? Yeah, if, you, if you're familiar with China's cultural revolution, the members of the Red Guard, usually young people, would uh, drag out those who, for whatever reason, were not chanting in unison with everybody else or who were not uh, uh, zealous enough and they would be put on trial before the public. Basically stand there, uh, trash thrown at you, beaten, spit upon, humiliated, forced to confess your sins and to, to uh, basically be subjected to the crowd's brutality. You have, your sins are against the party, okay? It's, it's, it's bad news. Struggle sessions, uh, says El Gato Malo, were the hallmark of menacing Marxism from Mao to Stalin. 
You just rounded up the dissidents and the inadequately zealous, or whoever happened to not kowtow quickly enough when you sauntered by in your snazzly brutality, uh, snazzy brutality battalion sash, and you jammed them into the middle of a crowd amidst the threat of impending violence and then forced and shamed them into confessing their errors and their insufficiencies. Very powerful mechanism of control that instills fear because it's peer-driven. It comes from nowhere. It could grab and affect anyone. It's how you get the mob to watch itself by handing out attaboys when it turns on members and ravages them. I like how Elgato Malo puts this. It's crowdsourced thought police. Shockingly unpleasant to live through and also shockingly attractive to a certain kind of bully. But even the most melodramatic of Maoists will generally not toss you in the cauldron for a simple apology. That's a really special kind of, uh, of zealot that would do that kind of thing. And, and there's, a couple of in, there's a couple of examples that are given here. Not surprisingly, it's, it's student protesters going off on, uh, on people who are coming to speak at their campuses. Now, the one I saw that really struck me as, as really interesting was uh, Judge Duncan, who I believe is a 5th District Court judge, coming to speak at Stanford. Now, Stanford's, a, I think, a pretty well-regarded university. But uh, the, the judge came to speak and instead was just heckled the whole time. And finally, the judge stopped and just turned to one of the people, one of the administrators there and said, look, I, I came to speak. But I, I'm just being, you know, heckled nonstop. Is there an administrator? Is there someone who's in charge here? And it upstepped the uh, diversity officer or the DEI dean, who then went on a 10-minute rant lecturing this judge on his white privilege. That's what a struggle session looks like in modern-day America. And the crazy thing about this is this judge as well as other speakers, are often invited to come to these struggle sessions. Just come, come and see. And, and then we'll, uh, we'll have you force, we'll force you to confess your sins against, you know, our, our particular dogma. It's crazy. The, the, the parallels that we have with the cultural revolution that took place in China, and I understand it's not, it's not perfect line for line. It's just we're going down a very similar path. And, and for those who, who don't know the history or don't understand what happened in China during that cultural revolution, this is not a good place to be. By the way, if you'd like to read a book that can shed some firsthand experience, you know, on, on what it was like, <clears throat> as a, especially as a young child going through that, Red Scarf Girl. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the author, but if you were to Google the book Red Scarf Girl, you would be able to read a firsthand account of someone who watched that cultural revolution unfold. And it's, it's brutal and it's ugly. And the same things that were happening, you know, in that Chinese cultural revolution, basically all of the old ways, even people who had furniture from a time when they were more free and when, you know, things could be nice, they would sit there and they would paint it up or they would, they would try to make it look as trashy as possible so it didn't look like they had nice things because anything that reminded us of the decadent past, you know, that we've abandoned in, in uh, favor of, you know, going toward this, this Chinese Communist Party, you know, was to be rejected. So if someone saw, well, they have really nice furniture. I noticed that uh, they didn't get rid of all their jewelry. Somebody still had some earrings or something. 
That's all it took to get the cancel mob or the uh, the struggle session mob, you know, convening at your doorstep. It's really ugly stuff, and it plays on some of the ugliest parts of human nature. We're kind of seeing this right now with uh, with a lot of the uh, um, militant, you know, transsexual uh, activism going on out there. And and interestingly enough, and I I really don't I don't say this to be cruel. The people who were given power and responsibility in China's cultural revolution were often the disaffected. Okay, they were the unpopular. They were the people who had been um, either incompetent to to hold certain jobs or to to be in leadership roles. The marginalized people were given power, and they were the ones who were the most ruthless in exercising it over others. I see similar parallels. You know, when when the uh, Again, the the pro-trans activists get wound up. I'm seeing a very similar vibe. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I know when it comes to uh, getting a good take on what's going on, you got to be pretty careful about the sources that you access out there. And, and I'm, there are some great writers, and there are some very deceptive writers out there. Sadly, the really deceptive ones are also among the most talented often, which I guess is, you know, a matter of, well, they have a gift. They have, the, you know, this, this talent for wordsmithing or for, uh, for, tearing, for telling a story, rather, for, you know, providing narrative. And, uh, you know, not to make it too dramatic, they, they use their powers for evil, or they, they basically sell out. Because, uh, hey, well, it pays good money if I, you know, tow this establishment line. But it's hard to tell. Now, John Miltimore is one of my favorite writers just because I've, I've watched him. I've watched him over the years. I met him uh, several years ago attending a conference at the Foundation for Economic Education. Very impressive guy. Just very down to earth and a great writer. I especially came to appreciate John's writing during the pandemic because he was one of the better researchers and one of the better writers about, you know, lockdowns, about masks, about any number of different topics. He really did his research well and uh, never once set himself up as the infallible, you can, you can trust me, I am the science, you know, like some other people did. Well, when John weighs in on an issue, I want to hear what he has to say, because typically the guy has a very well thought out and, and rational point of view. And you want to talk about a, a rational point of view on a very difficult conversation? How about national divorce? I know you've heard the phrase, but um, John actually has a very good take on what Americans should not do in the national divorce debate. And I think it's, it's, it's good enough. I want to share some excerpts of this with you. He says, Americans may once again be sliding toward a period of great uncertainty, but that's all the more reason to keep cool heads and to stick to sound principles. In fact, uh, John Miltimore says in 2021, he says uh, actress and comedian Sarah Silverman gave a heartfelt monologue explaining why it was time for the United States to just break up. If folks aren't getting along, she said, uh, maybe people should go their separate ways. You could have a USA one and USA two. And she was even gracious enough to say they, meaning the conservatives could be USA one. 
Now, more recently, Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene waded into the debate saying, we need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. In fact, she says, everyone I talk to says this, from the sick and disgusting woke culture issues shoved down our throats to the Democrats' traitorous America last policies. And she goes on, people are tired of always fighting. Marjorie Taylor Greene says people saying national divorce is a bad idea because the left will never stop trying to control us. Literally make the case for national divorce. We don't want a civil war. We're not surrendering. We're tired of complaining with no change and we want to protect our way of life. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene's tweet, unsurprisingly, garnered a lot more media attention than Silverman's. Almost all of it negative. And John Miltimore says the knee-jerk reaction is to attack people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Sarah Silverman for even broaching the subject. But he says, I believe that's the wrong approach. He says, I recently purchased Richard Kreitner's 2020 book, Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union, a meticulously researched book that traces the history of unionism and separatism in America. Now, Kreitner's political views are very different than mine, says John Miltimore. He writes at The Nation. But as he makes clear, arguments over sovereignty, secession, and separatism are as American as apple pie. In fact, until the 20th century, there was rarely a period in history when Americans were not wrestling with these questions. John says, this brings me to my point. One can oppose national divorce on numerous grounds, but Americans should resist the impulse to scream treason at people who raise the issue of peaceful separation, independence. Much better terms, in his opinion, than secession or national divorce. It's not treasonous for people to peacefully discuss exercising their natural right to form a new government. Thomas Jefferson, writing in the Declaration of Independence, makes it quite clear this is a right that belongs to the people. And polls show a surprising percentage of Americans actually support the idea. Are they all traitors? Richard Kreitner certainly doesn't think so. In fact, quite the opposite. In a Slate interview, he said, I think questioning the value of the union is arguably the most patriotic thing we could do. Now, Americans may be once again sliding toward a period of great uncertainty, but that's all the more reason to keep cool heads and to stick to sound principles. I just feel like this is some very, very good advice. And and I do like, uh, I like his, his uh, slant on here. Um, what did he call it? Uh, separation, peaceful separation slash independence. Now, I know that, uh, you know, the, the people who consider sel- themselves the sophisticated keepers of all the opinions out there, you know, they talk about it as well. That's just crazy-eyed neo-Confederate fantasizing. But it's, it's not about, you know, the South will rise again. This is about people who recognize that, you know what, we've... If you really want to divide, you know, see where the dividing line is, you're going to find that the division is not so much between Democrat and Republican, conservative and liberal, etc. It's between the collective and the individual. Those who respect the rights of the individual are the ones who are are looking at uh, the possibility of peaceful separation and independence as opposed to, no, let's just continue to fight to the death. The collectivists, who, by the way, include Republicans as well as Democrats, are the ones who say, you can't go. Try and leave me, babe. See what happens. That's the attitude that they take. And it comes from that, uh, that collectivist desire, that lust 
to control and to dominate other people. So I guess my point here is if, if you're on the side that, that honors individual freedom, even the freedom of people you don't agree with, you're on the right side. Because that collectivist side is all about coercion. It's all about, well, you have no individual rights. You only have such rights as the collective deigns to recognize. Nope. Nope. That's, that's not going to work. That sounds like a good way to end up with uh, a very uh, subjugated society of, of people who are just you know, timidly waiting for someone to tell them what to think, what to feel, what to believe, what to say. If you know you are a free man or woman, you're not going to sit back and wait for those kinds of individuals to give you, you know, permission. Okay, you can be free now for 10 minutes and I'm counting. Go ahead. You're going to you're going to seize your freedom and you're going to be free. You're going to choose to live free. By the way, that sounds like, oh, is that militant? No, it's it's really pretty peaceful. The militant part comes when some collectivist sorry, I have to self-censor for a moment here. Some collectivist jerk decides, well, I'm going to have to exercise force on you to make you do what I think is, is the right thing. So again, people who want to control other people, people who do not want to control other people, that is the great dividing line in humanity. And truth be told, all of us have to deal with that tendency of human nature of wanting to control other people. We all have a little inner tyrant, and, you know, if we indulge that tyrant, they will get out of control. So better still to, uh, you know, learn to, to exile that little inner tyrant. Don't let the inner tyrant uh, have any say in the matter when somebody brings up some emotional issue. The knee-jerk reaction shouldn't be, why? There ought to be a law about that. But I think we're rapidly heading to a place where the people who just want to be left alone really, really want to be left alone are going to have to do something. And, and I would much prefer peacefully separate themselves from those who want to control them. I, you know, I, I like the idea that uh, um, I wish people could, could choose, well, which system of government would you prefer to live under because there's this there's this false mindset that well if you're living here you consent to whatever we decide or decide to push upon you you know as government that's false that's the whole social contract thing we could get into that a little bit deeper if you'd like you know the idea of well uh, what when exactly did i sign this social contract show me the contract if it's this contract that's signed under duress it's not valid if it's a contract that's just simply implied I don't think that's valid either. And this is not to say that, you know, we, we don't uh, come together and on certain ways we agree. Yeah, I'm willing to give up a measure of my autonomy, you know, for the sake of living in harmony with others. That's why I don't play loud music, you know, late at night to keep my neighbors awake and that kind of thing. That's just courtesy. But my goal here is to persuade you that that personal autonomy, that ability to just be left alone to pursue happiness as you see fit, it's really important. And the people who would deny you that and who would insist, nope, you're in a suicide pact and you have to stay with us no matter what, they're not operating in your best interest. So it's the collective versus the individual. You and I, we are the individuals. We better be squared away and know exactly what we're about and 
and why our freedom is important enough to claim, use, and defend. Because it feels like we're getting closer to push coming to shove every single day. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I would invite you, please, consider going to thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the show notes. Click the subscribe button. It's going to ask you for an email. That's it. No cost. I'll send you the notes every day that I do the show. And and I won't spam you either. You'll you'll get an email from me saying, hey, here's the, here are the show notes. There are links to the various articles, the various guests that I have on board. I would like to, to encourage you to dig deeper, do your own research. And it's, again, it's free of charge. I can't make it any easier to access than this. So, yeah, talking about national divorce, a.k.a. secession or uh, dividing up the states, that's pretty controversial, right? Well, it's not the most controversial thing that I will be sharing with you today. In fact, I really hesitated to even bring this up, but uh, but I'm going to share this one. And it starts with the question, does a society that dresses as if it matters have more respect for itself? See, I'm kind of torn on this too, because I'm I'm really not one who, nobody would look at me and go, wow, that guy's success have to- has totally gone to his clothes. Nope, that's not me. But I think there is something to be said for how we regard ourselves when we dress like we are serious people, men and women going about the business of, of society. This is an article from Meta Corte on intellectualtakeout.org. Meta Corte says, while some Americans have trickled back to the office, a large percent are staying home, and with this new work-from-home reality, it seems we have forgotten how to get dressed in the morning. Without any expectation to dress up, it's easier to to not put on proper clothing, leaving us to wander through our spaces looking disheveled and, and vacant. It seems we don't know how to be home any longer. Specifically, we don't know how to be home on purpose. We've all donned sweatpants on the bottom half of our bodies with the occasional crisp shirt only for the necessity of a, of a work call. Obviously, comfort is king, but the lordship of comfort has become so unseemly, sloppy, and stretched out. When did our homes become places where we don't care. Meta Corte says, what we wear, how we present ourselves matters. A lesson I learned at a young age. She says, when I was, a, when I was four years old, I couldn't wait to go to school. I believe that uh, all the, the things, uh, all things fun and mysterious and exciting happened at school. And I had my older brother to prove that this was true by coming home with books and projects and stories. But what I really wanted was to wear school clothes. So she says, I adored the little skirts with tights, sweaters with animals on them, and dresses that my mom sewed. I wanted a high ponytail atop my head and a ribbon around it to match whatever color my clothes were that day. I had school clothes and play clothes and church clothes. Clothes told the story of what I was doing. And she says, changing into play clothes was always the first task to be completed when returning home from school. I had no idea what my mom did during our absence since I couldn't imagine her doing anything other than missing us. But one thing stood as a signal of her accomplishments, laying out our clothes for our return from school. Neatly folded and piled on each bed, our play clothes were at the ready. 
Now, she says, clothes always fascinated me in my life as a designer, interior, not fashion, draws inspiration from attire that can be seen everywhere and on everyone. In fact, she says, I embrace dressing on purpose. This can fit a variety of styles, crisp and starched with an ensemble of vertical lines, color that pops out at you as if it wants to say something important, fluid and soft and gentle and draped or studded and bold. But whatever the style, it is chosen. It is selected to be important and intentional. Now, she says, I'm no stranger to the comfort uniform, but since when does comfort have to mean unkempt? Each day I dress casually when working in my home office. I'll don a blazer for my conference call, shove my feet into boots for the trip to the store, put on sneakers at the gym, and finish up with a robe and slippers as the night falls around me. I'm ready whether the doorbell rings with an unexpected visitor or there's a quick change of plans to meet a friend for lunch. My day is not only decided and formed, but fluid and amenable to the exquisite spontaneity of life. Now, she says, the matter of dress can be thought of as a costume meant to convey a message to ourselves as well as to others. Just as a repairman carefully selects the correct tool for the job with the expectation that the orderliness of his tools showcases that he knows what he's doing. We should always put the same care into our selections that to cover our bodies as we begin our days. The right outfit shows ourselves and others that we know what we're doing. In this way, she says, dressing on purpose starts our days with a decision fulfilled, a good decision fulfilled. Putting on the right clothing puts us in the right mentality for the day. It allows us to solve problems, think big thoughts, debate ideas, fulfill responsibilities, and love those around us. Now, Maida Corte says, certainly dressing at home has become optional, but this seems to be a disrespect not only of ourselves, but also those around us. Meanwhile, getting dressed in something more than flannel patterned pants and a somewhat stale t-shirt signals that we are part of life and living it on purpose. Now look, I'm I'm not a dandy, but I think she is onto something. And maybe it's because I watched one too many episodes of Mad Men, but there was something about the way that people dressed. When men wore hats and, you know, the the uniform of a man about the business of life was was a, a suit and tie you know you wore a, a shirt and jacket and and you dressed up to go out and to be in public it just seems that people conducted themselves more respectably and i could be dead wrong here okay because i'm certainly not an expert on the subject like i say nobody who's looked at me would ever think that my success went to my clothes but I wonder sometimes if we have uh, embraced comfort to the point where, you know, I'm just comfortable being slovenly and uh, that's, you know, th- that's the, the typical, I'm sorry to pick up, the typical Walmart shopper, someone who goes shopping in their pajamas. I just can't be bothered to do anything but, you know, go to Walmart, hop on the electric scooter and, you know, go around and pick up my snacks. I know it's not a very flattering stereotype. And I'm just wondering aloud, you know, Personally, I wouldn't mind to see hats make a comeback, but I just have this sense, and I can't seem to shake it, that that uh, people conduct themselves more respectfully when they're dressed more respectfully. And please understand, this is coming from the kid who hated to put on church clothes. Oh, man, one of the worst insults of my childhood was uh, we were traveling on a Sunday, and my mom said, well, to remind us that it's Sunday, we're going to wear our church clothes as we're traveling. 
I thought that was the most useless garbage. Oh, I hated that so bad. It felt like punishment. Put on your church clothes. Put on your church clothes. Okay, now we're going to be driving around, uh, you know, Bryce Canyon National Park, and I'm just, man, this sucks. I'd rather be wearing my tough skins. (laughs) Such were the times. You know, it was the early 70s. All right, one quick article that I want to share with you. Um, just I'll just give you a couple of excerpts. This is from the Brownstone Institute, another marvelous resource for wrong thinkers. David Bell has written an article about uh, the um, pandemics are not the real threat. The real health threat, that is. He says the Western world has been caught in a spiral of self-harm and debasement for the past three years. Aspects of the underlying psychology have been discussed discussed rather in abstract terms regarding mass anxiety and the actions of crowds. Little has been said about the possibility that we are simply terrified of death. This is a fear we may need to address if we are to stop acting like fools. Now his point is, death was once part of life. A visit to an old cemetery will reveal that many earlier gravestones are memorials to young children or women of childbearing age. This is because, obviously, a large proportion of children died before they turned five, and about one in ten or more women died in childbirth. Death happened, and people also traveled, had parties, went to concerts, and lived fulfilled lives. Now, in wealthier countries, better hygienic conditions, better food, antibiotics, and surgery have largely removed the barriers to a long life. Many in the West now reach adulthood without ever seeing someone die, or even having seen a dead body. Very few have experienced a friend dying, many have not even been to a funeral, and few have sat with someone as they passed from life. He says death is rarely talked about, and coping with a kin's death is often left to the individual and the support of professional experts. Public mourning is unfamiliar. In fact, it can be an embarrassment. And if we believe the lie that humans are merely organic constructs, then death may also be a terrifying blankness of nothing. From here, he talks about coping with our response to COVID. He talks about how our death belongs to us, not to tyrants. The bottom line is, saving society from eating itself with fear and stupidity will rely on us educating ourselves. David Bell says, society's experts are doing very well from pandemics. They have no incentive to provide us with such education. But he says this will require each of us to find time for discussion, for reflection and time for thought on what life actually is. He says we need to calmly sum up what's happening around us, take the risk of exploring what it is that we really value, and then stop others from abusing our ignorance. It's really a marvelous article, and it's really kind of a short one too. Take a look, it's David Bell from the Brownstone Institute. This is The Brian Hyde Show.